we are continuing uh, in our look at the Gospel of Luke. And, you know, we, we titled this Seeing Jesus Anew, the Gospel of Luke. One of the things I hate is coming up with uh, sermon series titles. Uh, I'm not really very good at it. And Sally, our communications person, is like, come on, you got to come up with something. And so usually I just make something up. And, um, and that's what I did with this. Um, but the more that we dive into it, the more I really love this sense of being able to see Jesus anew. And what we mean by that is not just seeing Jesus anew in Luke, uh, as we are hopefully able to do, but also then being able to see Jesus anew in our daily lives, in the ways that we work, live, and play. Are we able to see and experience Jesus? This is one of the keys to discipleship, is being able to see where Jesus is alive in your life. And that's one of the things that we get to look at uh, even more, uh, even more specifically this morning. Morning. This morning we're looking at chapter 7. Uh, it's a little bit of a lengthier passage, verses 18 through 35. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, being, G, uh, being John the Baptist. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to expect someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to expect someone else? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with a skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God, having been baptized with John's baptism. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, not having been baptized by him, rejected God's purpose for themselves. To what then will I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, be with us this morning that we might see you. 
And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right. So our passage today begins with these words. The disciples of John reported all these things to John the Baptist. So what are all these things to which they were reporting to John? Well, that's a great question. It's one that we must address. The good news is, because of the fact that we've been going through Luke, we know what all these things are. All these things were things like the Sermon on the Plain that we just got done talking about. Remember the Sermon on the Plain? Jesus comes down from the mountain after spending a night in prayer. He selects in this remarkable amount of grace and love. He selects these 12 disciples, even knowing, of course, that they are going to uh, not always follow him. And yet he still calls them. And then he begins to proclaim all of this good news, right? This is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. The poor, right? Uh, the hungry, they will be satisfied. And the rich and the wealthy, they will be humbled. The kingdom of God, he says, is going is to be this place where full of generosity. It's going to be a place where our enemies are actually loved. It's going to be a place where you see the plank in your own eye well before you see the sliver in your neighbor's eye. It's going to be a group of people whose lives are built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. So these are some of the things that they would have been hearing, these disciples of John. And then, of course, they would have been seeing Jesus actually live these things out. Remember, this is what we talked about last week. He, he would have seen how he loved his enemy, the centurion, by the healing of his servant. He would have, uh, they would have seen how Jesus cares for this widow, this widow whose only son dies by bringing new life, by breathing new life into him. They would have seen all these things, these disciples of John, and were told that they go and they reported them to John. Here are all the things that we've seen. This is all that we've experienced with this Jesus. And what does John do? John says, okay, go and, go and ask him whether or not he's the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? Do you notice how strange that is? They go and all of these things that they tell him, all these remarkable things, and he says, all right, you know, please just go and ask if he's the one, or if there's really, is there someone better coming along? And I love the way that Luke kind of just, uh, he emphasizes this, right? He doesn't just have them go back and to Jesus and just say, hey, you know what? Uh, here's the question. No, he, he spells it all out. Once again, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? I mean, this is, must have been remarkable for Jesus to have thought through this particular question and it would have been somewhat hurtful, especially in the light of the fact that John the Baptist and Jesus, they knew each other. Do you remember in the first chapter of Luke, when did John the Baptist first meet Jesus? Nicely done, nine o'clock, in the womb, right? There comes Mary, she greets uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, both of them are pregnant. John the Baptist, we're told, leaps in the womb, right? This is a story. You know these stories. This is a story that gets passed on again and again. Mom says, hey, remember when you were in the womb? You don't remember, but you remember I've told you this story a thousand times, you know, because there's something different about Jesus. 
Or in the third chapter, what happens in the third chapter? We have the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, right? And, and he goes and he baptizes him. And then all of a sudden the spirit comes down like a dove. And there's a voice of the father. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist has been a part of all of this. Can you imagine if you're Jesus, how that must have felt? Right? Like, wait, we know each other. And now you're like asking, is there someone else? Do you not know me? It reminded me a little bit of when we lived in San Diego many years ago. We had just two kids then, my wife and I, and we went to the beach because it was basically all we could afford to do. And so we went to the beach, and there were some friends of ours from church. And so we, we met, we, we were there, and we were kind of having fun with them. And then they had invited another family from the church uh, to come. We would not met them before. His name was James, and he had a wife and kids. I can't actually remember their names. And so we had a great couple of hours together. It was a lot of fun. And we were kind of new in San Diego. And we thought, you know what? We like, we like James. This could be like a real great friendship. This is fun, you know? And so the very next day, that was a Saturday. The very next day on Sunday morning, we went to worship. We sat down. They had pews at this church where we were. And who should come sit next to us but James? This was great. Oh, good. He must like us too. And so he comes down and he looks over and he says, hi, my name's James. What's your name? We literally thought he was kidding. So at first we didn't answer. It was kind of like, <laughs> but then he just stood there. So we had to say, oh, I'm, I'm Jerry. This is Megan. And he said, oh, okay, great to meet you. This is a true story. You can ask Megan. So then we sat down in the pew. And you know, it's like we just kind of squeezed each other and just gave each other this weird look. And we couldn't wait to get out because it was so weird. He doesn't have an identical twin. That's what we thought. No, no, no. This was him. I don't know. But needless to say, we were kind of hurt because we thought we thought we had a moment. You clearly didn't feel the same, uh, you know. So I guess I guess we don't matter to you. So and this is a story that immediately I hadn't thought about it for a while, even though it kind of hurts me still. And so you know, to to, to think, wow, you would think that Jesus must have just been almost mortified. Like, come on, if if even John the Baptist doesn't know if I am the Messiah, then what hope is there? And what's fascinating, of course, is that he doesn't. Jesus doesn't really give him a, a direct answer. Like Jesus could have just said, yes, I am the Messiah, but he doesn't. Instead, what he says is, you know what? Tell him everything that you've seen and heard. Tell him everything that you've seen and heard. And, and they went back. And, and, and the reality is, of course, is that there's not going to be that much new that they tell him. Which makes me think that part of what Jesus is doing is Jesus realizes that actually what John the Baptist needs is, is not just more information. Sometimes we get into effect, if I just have a little bit more information, then I will believe. If I just have a little bit more, then, and we just sit there and we never actually begin to believe. We just think, oh, no, 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 it's not yet, not yet. And, and so why is it that, that, that John just doesn't see Jesus for who he is? Why is it hard for him to see Jesus there's probably many reasons, perhaps, but scholars, many of them, say, you know what? It's likely a part of the problem is the expectation. That John the Baptist, when he looked for Jesus and he looked for a particular kind of Jesus, a Messiah like Jesus, he had certain expectations for what it would look like. He thought that he would likely be a little bit more radical, if you will, right? Perhaps a bit more like John the Baptist, you know, a little bit more wild, even more calls for repentance than what Jesus already does, that, that, that he was looking in a particular way. Keith Nichols says he, he, Jesus or, or John seems to have myopia. He seems to be expecting one thing, and, and when Jesus doesn't look just like that, then he, then he just can't see him at all. You see, our expectations 
have a huge role on what we see or what we do not see. I was reminded of a riddle as I was thinking about this. I don't remember riddles. I remember this one. For some reason, when I was a kid, um, um, I was around, I don't remember, I was probably eight or nine when I first heard the riddle. And it was a great riddle. It was one that would always get people. You may know it. It's, uh, uh, it's a little bit sad. I'd never really thought about this as a kid, but it's a little bit sad. Um, so there was a boy and his father, a son and his father, and they were in a car accident. And the father passed away. And the son... Uh, was quickly um, um, taken to the hospital. And it was clear he needed an operation. So he went into the uh, surgery room and the surgeon came in and the surgeon said, I cannot operate on this child because he is my son. So people, you know, kids were like, yeah, who could this be? And people would, you know, was the father resurrected? No. Was it a stepdad? No. How could it be that this boy was, was, was the surgeon's son? Do y'all know the answer to this? Yeah. Because what's weird is that when I tell my girls this, almost 35 years later, I tell them this story, and they sit there for a moment, and then they say, oh, well, it's his mom. Well, yeah, it's his mom. It's pretty doggone easy, actually. But in the 80s, what we expected when we thought the word surgeon, what did we expect to see? We expected to see a man. I mean, as soon as we heard surgeon, we thought a man. And so if all of a sudden then, it's, I mean, it's clear as day, this is his mom, right? But we wouldn't have even, we just would have been like, I don't know, who could it be? A res- we thought a resurrected father more than the mother. But today, of course, you know, here with my girls, I mean, that's, you know, to think about a female doctor is not a surprise at all. So it's just like, that's a dumb riddle, Dad. It's not even a riddle. It has become a non-riddle. Riddle. Why? Because of our expectations, right? Our, our, our frame, right? It just, it's this great kind of example to me of how we can miss something that is so clear. And so there's John the Baptist, and when he expects something, right, when he expects that this is exactly what it's going to look like, and then it doesn't, he completely misses out who Jesus is. It's this remarkable sense of this question of our expectations. If we want to see Jesus, then we oftentimes need to begin to expand our expectation of exactly what Jesus looks like. This is a part of the reason why I keep hammering on this that Jesus is not going to most often reveal himself in the big and the bold and the exciting and the outlandish. We, especially in America, we have simply restricted God and Jesus to these outlandish, these big, these exciting things. And because of that, I am convinced we miss Jesus again and again and again in the small conversations that we have, in the acts of service that we can do, and and, and walking around in our neighborhood, that Jesus is there again and again and again, and we oftentimes miss him. Because we do not expect even to see him or we expect something that is so unique and small when it comes to who God is and what God looks like that we completely miss him again and again. Now I also think that probably a part of the reason why John the Baptist misses Jesus as the Messiah is because of his own perhaps disappointments. Uh, Luke doesn't say this, but in Matthew's version of this story, John the Baptist is in jail. 
And so people think, well, you know, part of the reason perhaps why John the Baptist misses him is because, you know what? This Jesus said that the prisoners are going to be set free. That the powerful would be humbled. John the Baptist is thinking, I'm still in jail and Herod is still on the throne. You see, when Jesus doesn't work exactly like we think oftentimes, then we begin to miss him because Jesus so often actually works not in the big and the exciting and not in only the good and the joyful, but he is oftentimes very present right there in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of prayers not being answered, in the midst of just impatience, when we just want to quickly see the work that we think we're praying for. God, why have you not worked quickly enough? God, you must not really be present here because of the fact that these things are still going. There's still evil. There's still injustice. There's still all of these things that are happening to me. Surely God can't be present. And Jesus so often is incredibly present in the midst of the Messiah in the midst of John the Baptist being in jail and even in the midst of Herod still being on the throne. Over the last several years, uh, as I've talked to you before, I have a spiritual director and, 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 and oftentimes we get it, when I get with the spiritual director, I get with, together with her monthly and, 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 and we talk about things and a lot of times the things that, that are come up, right, it'll be in the midst of something that's frustrating to me or, or a prayer that's not been answered or some kind of something that's bringing me some, some fear or anxiety or what have you and, 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 and I'll just be kind of going on and on about this and, 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 and she will say, because I think spiritual directors, they almost always have to have this very gentle tone, she'll say, where do you see Jesus in the middle of this? And I will say, that's the problem. He's non-existent. Thank you for understanding. Where is he? But the longer that we have met, the more that I have begun to see that even though it seems so clearly obvious to me, the things that are most obvious are the places where I feel like God is not present because this prayer is not being answered. This anxious thing is still there. Whatever else it may be, the more I have begun to slow down, the more I have begun to see and to ask that question, just simply framing it like that. Where is Jesus in the midst of this? More than asking the question, oh God, where are you? are not here. I don't know where you are. Just simply beginning to ask, where are you in the midst of this pain or my impatience or a prayer that hasn't been answered? And the longer I've been able to do that, the more often I've begun to see where Jesus is right there in the very middle so one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is, is to begin to ask that question. Where is Jesus in the middle of this? Not where is disparagingly, but I know that he's here. Where is he? And another thing I think that might be significant to do, we've talked about this before, but is during Lent and maybe even after to do the daily examine where at the end of the day, you just sit there and you just say, Jesus, where have I seen you today? Because the more that you begin to do that, the more that you begin to see Jesus, not just in the big and outlandish ways, but in the remarkably small ways in which Jesus is. And the more that we see him, the more we will continue to see him even more. 
Now, I think that actually the very end of this passage is this kind of fascinating uh, part of the story as well. That again, goes right back to the sense of where is Jesus and trying to see Jesus. Let's reread this again. It's kind of this uh, 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 towards the end of this uh, chapter. Here's what uh, I think we have. That Here it is. Jesus is talking about those who, don't really, uh, who didn't really like John the Baptist or Jesus, the detractors, if you will. And he says this. He says that they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner and sinners. What's Jesus saying? Well, I think he's saying a couple of things. One of the things he's saying is that as these two people look, they are looking for Goldilocks. They're looking for Goldilocks Messiah, right? They're looking for someone who just is right in the middle, right? John, oh, John's too hard. So harsh. Jesus, he's too soft. Much too soft. He's just, you know, he's willy-nilly. There's no rules. He's just a drunkard. I don't like either of those. What I want is I want Goldilocks Jesus. This is the Jesus who is incredibly comfortable, right? It's, it just fits in. It's exactly what I want. Not too hard, not too soft, just perfect Jesus, Goldilocks Jesus. We've said this before, that whenever Jesus to you is someone who only comforts and brings peace and does not challenge you in any way, that the likelihood is very great that what you are looking at is not Jesus, that what you are looking at is the mirror. What you are looking at is yourself. And you've kind of lifted yourself up almost to be this Jesus, to think, oh, this is just perfect. I love this kind of Jesus. But more often than not, what happens when you are serving a God whom you fully understand, then you're not actually serving God. Right? What does Paul say? Paul says that we see through a glass darkly. We don't see things clearly. If you understand everything about God, then you have made God far too small and predictable and he is no longer God. From time to time I hear people say, well, if that's who God is, I don't want to serve him. And I think that's dangerous. Because there is going to be things about God that we do not understand. And there are going to be challenges that God makes on our lives that we must be challenged by. And so a part of what, uh, a part of what he's saying here is, look, if you keep looking for this particular kind of Messiah and you just keep kind of saying, oh, that's not good, that's not good. If you're looking for that Jesus that just makes you feel perfect, then you are going to miss him again and again. But I also like what Fred Craddock says about this particular part of the story. He says this about the detractors. He calls them, he says, these unhappy people, they stand at sufficient distance from both ministries to criticize and to justify their refusal to participate by attacking the lifestyles of the two prophets. What does that mean? In other words, 
they're standing at a safe enough distance away that they aren't vulnerable. They're standing at a safe enough distance away that they can just throw jabs. Oh, I don't like that about it. I don't like that about you. I don't like that about you. And nothing is ever asked of them. They don't have to get close enough. They don't have to get involved enough in any kind of relationship with Jesus or, or let's say in a relationship with the church, right? Uh, in order to be bothered or hurt, there's no vulnerability. When you just stay at this close distance and you just keep throwing things, right? You get to stay just as you are. Nothing is required of you. But it also means that nothing is changed in you. And it means that you never actually experience the richness and the depth of a relationship with Jesus and the richness and the depth of what it means to be in a church. I told many years ago now um, about the story, and I'm not going to go into all the details, uh, about the Kaylee that I kind of happened upon when I lived in Scotland and Kaylee, just a Celtic dance, folk dance, if you will. And me and some expat friends, we went down to this gym because we heard music and they were doing this dance. There was this whole group of people doing this dance together. It was, uh, it was fun. It was, again, it was like a square dancing kind of thing. And so I, I kind of went back into the corner, into the shadows, because I wasn't going to get that close because um, I thought we weren't really invited anyways, and we, we weren't. And so, but, 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 but these Canadian friends, by and large, they, they, they just ju- they jumped in. And I stood back in the corner and I had a great time in the beginning because I just sat back there making making fun of them, right? Because they just looked like complete fools. I mean, they were going the wrong way and they were kind of tripping up over one another. They were running into people. I mean, they just looked like uh, embarrassing kind of North Americans, if you will, right? I mean, they just had no idea what they were doing. And I felt really good because I didn't risk anything and I wasn't having to deal with any of those things. And I was alone, that's true. But if there had been somebody there, we would have been having a great time making fun of them. But here's what happened after probably 20 or 30 minutes as I just kept kind of thinking, (laughs) I kept looking at them and here's something they began to change because all of a sudden they began to get the steps and I began to see how they were kind of figuring this thing out and and I could see the smiles on their faces and the smiles on the faces of those around them and it was clear that they were having this remarkable time they kept getting things wrong from time to time but you could just see them they were going left when they were supposed to now and right when they were supposed to and and I was just sitting here and I just realized that I was missing out on this remarkable experience and so finally right and one of the great things about this particular dance that they were doing was that there was always this invitation right Always this invitation, always reaching out a hand, always reaching out a hand, till eventually when they reached out that hand, I decided that I was going to grab a hold of it. Why? Well, because I didn't want to be kind of left over here any longer. And, and when I was a part of it, yes, you know what? I messed up all the time. I look like a fool. You can just imagine what I look like, right? And I was getting it wrong, but man, the music was so incredible. And being a part of this group, this kind of ragtag of people that just kind of came together, I mean, being a part of all of that, Right? It ended up being, as you know, it ended up being a story of an experience that, uh, when was that? 20 years almost ago now. I still remember. And you know what? If I'd stayed in the shadows, I probably would never have thought about that night again. And see, this is the challenge that we have. You know what? I want to bring this up, especially for those when it's a struggle to kind of get involved in the church. It is really easy. Let me be super clear. It is easy to just look at a distance and be like, oh, those hypocrites. Who wants to be a part of that? They say one thing and they do another. And let me be super clear. We have a lot of them. 
and I'm a part of that. But it is remarkable to be able to embed yourself in a community of people who mess up and go left when we should be going right, right when we should be going left. But when you are in this group of people, though imperfect as we may be, but a group of people who are working and who are trying to understand what it means to be loved by God and to experience the grace of Jesus, and who are trying to then say, how can we be Jesus to others? When you get to be a part of something like that, it isn't all perfect. It's not all roses, but there is something that happens and you begin to be transformed. And the question ultimately that we need to ask ourselves is, do we want to stay by ourselves where we can throw barbs and we can kind of mock and we can do all those things and we can stay the exact same cynical selves we've always been? Or do we actually want to dive in and begin to experience the love and the grace and the imperfection of a community of Jesus Christ. Because you see, one of the things that's so important to understand about this passage is that what it begins to show us is not just that when we begin to see Jesus more and more that it changes our lives, but it also allows us to be able to more often be able to invite and to witness to others of where Jesus is alive in their lives as well. You see, this is exactly what's happening here. Jesus tells the disciples, go. Just go and tell them everything that you've seen and heard. Did you hear that? You see, when it comes to witnessing, we oftentimes like to think, oh my goodness, how am I going to witness? How am I going to insert Jesus here or, or there or there? You know, I don't know, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it and I don't have a five-step apologetics and all those things are fine. The apologetics are great. All those things are wonderful. But what we see with Jesus is the way that we are a witness is by helping others to simply experience who Jesus is through our very lives. And we, it's a constant invitation. The more we begin to see Jesus, the more we begin to change by what we see and hear, the more we are changed by what we see and hear, and the more that becomes becomes an invitation to others to say, who is this person and what is different about him or her and in the ways in which we are inviting others into a journey. This is what it means to be a witness. It is to invite others into a journey. Let me close with this Tony Campolo story. You may know Tony Campolo. He's got this great story about... Um, a man named Joe. Joe was a part of, a, he was in New York. He was an alcoholic, a homeless. He was a part of the, of what's a, a, the Bowery Mission, which is this famous mission in New York City. There was not much going well for Joe. He wasn't exactly ideal. Uh, everybody kind of knew Joe, but not for good reasons. Then one day, Joe had this experience with Jesus that kind of changed him. And so he just, all of a sudden, he had this kind of remarkable shift. And sure enough, he began to be a different person. And one of the ways that they began to see this was by the ways that he began to serve. He would show up at the mission night or day, and this was remarkable. He would begin to do things like, I don't know, like clean toilets. And, and, and he'd begin to do things like cleaning up throw up. I love this, right? When you think about seeing or Jesus, you know, oh, the Jesus experience, that's really going to elevate me. Actually, remember it's an upside down kingdom so you might actually just start cleaning more toilets 
And he begins to do this. And he always had this kind of, this, this, this affect of him that really changed. That he was much more welcoming, much more generous. This kind of, this, this sense of gratitude. And, and, and everyone began to understand Joe was a completely different person. And one night there was a, another homeless kind of man. And he, he, he came forward in the middle of the worship service. At the end of the worship service, he came down to the altar. And he began to pray. He said, I want to change. He said, God, I want to change. And he kept saying, make me more like Joe. Make me more like Joe. Make me more like Joe. And, and the pastor came down and in a very pastoral way. He said, well, you know, don't you think that you should probably be saying, make me more like Jesus. And the man looked up at him that the pastor kind of puzzled and he said, is he like Joe? <laughs> and see, this is exactly what it looks like when you begin to experience Jesus. When you begin to see Jesus, not just in the big ways, but in the small ways, the more that you see him, the more that you begin to hear him, the more that you begin to change, and the more that you are transformed, the more that your very life begins to invite others to be able to see and hear and experience Jesus in a different way. And this is a part of the call of this congregation to be a people who slow down, to be a people who are not afraid of silence, that we might then be a people who begin to remember the places that we have seen Jesus. And as we do so, we are transformed and our lives become an invitation to others to come to see and to hear the Jesus who was born and died for them. May it be so. Amen? Let's pray. God, it is hard at times for us to see you and to hear you, and yet we know that you are in our midst. And so I pray that you would be with us this morning and that you would help us to see you anew. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.